Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we're on a constant journey with our listeners, walking and talking our way through history, and highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world one episode at a time. Come along for the journey. Leading by History. Welcome back to another episode of the Leading by History podcast. We welcome you back uh, to Leading by History. It is a pleasure to be with you again for another episode. Uh, I'm excited as always, every time we have a show, I'm so excited, but I'm really excited about today. Um, I've got Dr. Mary Hicks with us who has been doing some research that I think people really need to know more about. Uh, she published an, an article most recently entitled uh, Transatlantic Threads of Meaning, West African Textile Entrepreneurship in Salvador uh, da Bahia, 1770 to 1870. And I wanna delve into this because I can't speak Portuguese. I do know Spanish. Uh, so I'm sure that there's going to be a lot, and I've got a uh, uh, Semitic uh, language on the mind. So I'm I'm interested in digging into some of this. Dr. Hicks, welcome to the Leading by History podcast and podcast. Thank you for having me on. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, just so my audience knows mm -hmm. why I've invited you out uh, today to be on the show? Can you tell us about like your background as it pertains to how you developed into becoming a historian and some of the things that you've worked on, where you've worked as a historian? Give us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I one of the reasons I became interested in history as a very young person, young child, was that my dad was actually a collector of antiques, and he specialized in memorabilia related to the African American experience. So he, you know, in our household, we had all these old prints from the 19th century hanging on the walls. We had old toys from the 20th century depicting Black figures. Some of them were derogatory, but we also had, you know, portraits of, you know, um, you know, luminaries um, in our house as well, um, African-American luminaries. Um, we also had a lot of books in our house. So we had first edition James Baldwin. We had first edition Toni Morrison, all this stuff. So I sort of grew up uh, in a, a bit of a museum-like setting. And it was because of that that I really got interested in African-American history. Um, and so as I went into college, uh, I attended the University of Iowa, I thought I was gonna become a lawyer, you know, like someone who had, you know, aspirations for a nice middle-class life. I wanted to become a lawyer. I thought I could be good at, um, you know, legal argumentation, but then the, the more history classes I took, the more I recognized that what I was really interested in was learning more about, at first, the African-American experience, um, because I wrote about a, a, a thesis uh, about um, 20th century US, um, African-American soldiers during World War I. Um, but then I sort of decided my senior year 
of college to move to Brazil. So I was an English teacher in Brazil for a while. Um, I really fell in love with the place, um, not for the reasons that I thought initially. I mean, I think in the American imagination, someplace like Brazil is almost presented like a paradise. Um, it's beautiful, it's tropical. You know, there's so much um, really intriguing cultural expression happening, music, art, uh, all this stuff. But when I was there, I really recognized that like the United States, it's a post-slavery society, high levels of inequality, um, you know, legacies of white supremacy. And so that was that was something that very much hit me while I was there, but I continued to be intrigued by it as a place and believe that, uh, and came to believe that really in order to understand the modern world we were living in, we have to understand some place like Brazil and why it is the way it is, because that will tell you a lot about the sort of processes that created this modern globalized world. And so I went to graduate school eventually at UVA where I got my PhD in history. Um, and I was trained as a Latin Americanist, so really a specialist of, of, of you know, Spanish and Portuguese speaking Americas, but also I had um, really great professors in African history while I was there. So I really was able to delve more deeply, I think, than a lot of people who study American slavery were into the literature on African history, on African anthropology. And that's really continued to, you know, inspire me and, and, and point me into the kind of direction I take with my scholarship, which is really taking seriously the kinds of ideas, concepts, um, ideologies, beliefs, everything that um, Africans would have taken with them on the transatlantic passage. Um, so that's really animated um, my scholarship. And right now I'm working on a book that's about African and Creole mariners in the transatlantic slave trade, basically from the early 18th century until um, the early 19th century. So that's what I'm focusing on now. And it's a bit of a labor history, but it's also trying to understand the multitude of influences they've had on the South Atlantic seafaring culture, whether that's legal, you know, the, the influence they had on legal strategies, the influence they had on uh, medical techniques practiced at sea, trading, which my article gets into. Um, so it's really trying to understand, well, how do these African mariners actually transform this space? Hmm. So it's interesting that you choose Brazil, Brazil, as the, as the focus. Mm -hmm. um, because it has one of the largest African populations, um, you know, on, on this side of, of the ocean. And, and so there are very distinct practices amongst African people in Brazil that clearly are, you know, the result of them bringing with them Mm -hmm. uh, this this culture through the Atlantic, right? E. Franklin Frazier in his writings used to argue that African-Americans had no African culture, that we, we came here, you know, without, were mm -hmm. bereft. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, I mean, and that just goes to show that, you know, <laughs> and those who don't know, they don't know. And it's better to say that we don't know. But but, but I think that that's, that's very interesting to me. And then you, you talk about your emphasis on mariners, right? And then Creoles. Can you talk uh, briefly, because this is going to come up in, in our conversation about your article, and I may deviate a little bit from the article into some of these things that you mentioned just for the sake of, of, of conversation, but can you explain to our listeners about Creoles? Uh, because I think that a lot of people 
associate Creole with Louisiana, right? And the, the Cajun and, you know, and that whole piece. And I don't think they understand uh, historically what is meant by that, that term Creole. Yeah, so that's actually a great tie-in and it really shows that word even, the existence of that word Creole, which is originated from a Portuguese word, Criollo. Um, it's a Portuguese word. It comes from the Portuguese uh, verb criar, which means to grow up, to be raised up, to be raised in. Um, and really what originally referred to was, you know, in the 15th and early 16th century, as the Portuguese are really spreading out globally, like they're the first seaborne European power right? Um, before the British, before the French um, enter the Atlantic world, the Portuguese are there first. And one of the things um, they do is they create communities first in West Africa and then later in Brazil among African and then later indigenous American people. Um, and so they have to come up with a new language to talk about all these new people and their descendants. Um, so they, they, they create this idea of, of the criollo, which is someone who is of African descent. Usually it means um, in the period I'm talking about a full African descent, right? So not mixed indigenous and African, not mixed European and African, but full African descent, but who is uh, born and raised in the Americas, right? So this is a new kind of person um, that's really uh, a whole identity category that's basically the result of the transatlantic slave trade um, and the, the movement of captive or enslaved Africans from West and West Central Africa, Congo and Angola um, to the new world, to the Americas. And so, and the French, you know, the reason why we tend to associate it with uh, the French is because the French also pick up this term and they also begin to call um, first Africans, but then also everyone who's born in the Americas, um, Creoles. Um, so this is a it's it's it really is an important word because it marks the origins of a new kind of person, right? Which is um, someone who's not originally from, who's not indigenous to the Americas, but has grown up there. And so you know, even in the uh, the development uh, that will come later of these castas, right, mm -hmm. amongst the Spanish, where mm -hmm. there is this breakdown of all of these different groups of people, the Sambos and, you know, and, and, and all of these folks. Um, I think this is very interesting because, you know, people don't know about generally Prince Henry the Navigator and they don't, they don't think about um, him being one of the first to start transporting Africans, um, you know, from, from the continent, even though um, they were only double digit numbers, but it, it still existed. And it was a, a early preparation for what would come later. Um, the Treaty of Tordesillas, right? And that line of demarcation that's set was around 1494, somewhere around there. And mm -hmm. uh, where the Pope says, look, I'm going to stop this, uh, this competition between Spain and, and Portugal over who's gonna get what. And he just draws this line arbitrarily, right? Which is how we end up getting Portuguese speaking folks on the West Coast of Africa um in in cape verde and 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 etc right I, I think it's it's so unique um when you because i think those are parts of the history that we don't learn about in k-12 education and maybe because you know many teachers are not haven't been taught it and don't know and it's definitely not in the curriculum you know so i, I think all of that is just so so fascinating to me so 
Um, I've been writing an article for like four years. Um, All the and, best ones take that long, right? <laughs> and um, and I I did a I did a show on it last season, uh, talking about racial betrayal in the founding of New Spain, mm -hmm. uh, in which I deal with these mariners, some of them um, coming in, uh, but with the Spanish, right? Um, uh, Africans who came in to help and were sort of seen as conquistadors, you know, mm -hmm. um, f fighting to subdue indigenous people in the land. And then I explore, you know, were they traitors to the idea of solidarity or of, of, of racial creeds, you know, etc. Et as we understand, um, race and, and solidarity and pan-Africanism and, uh, you know, this, this, this thing now that it's becoming, um, it's waning, this BIPOC situation, right, <laughs> that I see people are challenging. Um, so, so what made the, to me, I guess it would be obvious, but can you tell our listeners why the Mariners, why was that important for you? And then, you know, the African and Creole, as opposed to just African Mariners, like what's the connection there? Why was that an emphasis? And then we'll get into uh, the textiles, go ahead. Yeah, so that's a really great question. And as you mentioned, a lot of people don't know that the earliest conquests of places like what, are, what we'd all call Mexico, Central America, and even the Andes involved um, people of, African descent, right? We even have letters from people like Juan Corrido, who is one of the early conquistadors, um, who are launching independently, some of them are even enslaved, who are launching independently military campaigns against indigenous communities to subdue and conquer um, and eventually colonize them. And then of course, they write back to the King of Spain and ask for um, acknowledgement of this. Right. Um, and so they are very much an early part of this Spanish and Portuguese imperial project. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's important for historians and, and history teachers in general to really acknowledge the messiness of this early history and to really acknowledge, um, you know, the, the kind of uh, complicated ethical and moral issues raised by this, right? As you're saying, there isn't necessarily um, steadfast indigenous African solidarity. Sometimes there is, um, you know, sometimes we have maroon communities where we have records of um, indigenous, let's say PD Indians um, in, in certain parts of what, what is now Ecuador um, being collaborators with fugitive African enslaved people. But other times there were conflicts right between these two groups. So we can't assume a kind of um, anti-colonial or anti-white supremacy solidarity in this very early mess messy period. And one of the things that interests me about the Mariners is because is that they very much in, uh, demonstrate the kind of messiness of a Portuguese imperial project, which is very reliant on not only African um, sort of physical brute labor, which we tend to very easily imagine enslaved people performing, but various kinds of skilled labor, right? So interpreting uh, is, a, uh, is a kind of form of skilled labor that um, uh, enslaved and sometimes freed African sailors and mariners would um, you know, carry out for ship captains. And 
a lot of it had to do with um, sort of interpreting for for you know West African communities, especially you know as there's different commercial transactions happening. Um, there's interpreting going on between um, uh, enslaved mariners and in, enslaved people held on cargoes, right? Who are going to be sold when they arrive in the, in the port um, that they're traveling to. But also these mariners were going as far as China. Um, they're going as far as India, Japan, and we have records of this. And there are actually these amazing um, paintings in Japan that depict African mariners um, on these Portuguese vessels, on these Portuguese carracks. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a, a, um, a strong suggestion that Africans were in fact learning Chinese. They were learning all these other languages that we don't tend to associate with, let's say, the skill set of an enslaved person. Mm. Not to mention all the physical labor that it takes to run a ship, which is very elaborate. Early modern, modern sailing ship is a very elaborate machine. Um, and you have to understand winds and currents and how the sails work and, you know, all these different aspects of running a ship. So they were really integral to this. And um, in the period I study, which is slightly later, um, there's evidence of it during this early period, during what's called the Age of Discoveries, um, mm -hmm. which is basically the 15th and 16th century of there always being an African presence on these ships, basically. Um, but in the later period that I write about in my, in my book, um, we're dealing with something like 40% um, are people of African descent or African born. Mm. So it's a really high percentage um, and some ships have even more. Um, so they are, they are very integral to seaborne travel, which of course, you know, the, the, the sort of early modern world wouldn't exist without. I, lo I love the connection to, uh, to far East Asia, right? And that like, all of that, these are things that folks don't think about. And, uh, you know, and, and, and can lead you down a good rabbit hole of learning more about the African presence around the world. Uh, you know, Dr. Sujan Das uh, said, when the world was black, he wrote a book called When the World Was Black and, and uh, Robin Walker, uh, When We Ruled. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, talking about the origin of all of this being African people really at its core uh, in the very beginning. So so what's what interests me before we go into uh, a, a break uh, for our podcast listeners, I want to talk briefly about this piece with the textiles mm -hmm. that you talk about um, textile entrepreneurship in in Salvador. And is it Dabaya? Dabaya? I want to make sure I pronounce it correctly in, in Portuguese. Bahia. 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 Right. Yes. Bahia. Yeah, okay. It would be similar to Spanish. Okay. And and so you, you talk about these transatlantic threads of meaning. So let's let's first delve into, I think the title in and of itself is is desiring for us to just labor in that for a minute. So when we talk about transatlantic's um, threads of meaning. Mm -hmm. To me, when I first was speaking to you, I thought about clothing, fabric as, as a mental liberator, right? As a way for people to experience a world that they have not had the opportunity to explore, to be able to escape uh, through fabric, the feeling of freedom, right? Th this is before I even really laid eyes on the, on the writing. Just the title had me going for a while. What did you mean by transatlantic threads of meaning? What meanings did you have in mind? 
Yeah, I, I'm glad you picked up on the title because one of the things that really motivated me when writing this article, um, so the first sort of bit of information that I, I happened on, so I should sort of give an explanation of the article. It's about this trade in what the uh, Portuguese called panas da costa, which means cloths of the coast, basically. And they're referring to a very specific region in West Africa. And it's about this trade um, from what we now call the Bight of Benin to the Northeast of Brazil, but also other parts of Brazil um, that I argue in the article is basically carried out by African people, um, many of whom are enslaved, some of whom are freed, um, some of whom are laboring on slaving vessels, others who are living in Bahia as enslaved itinerant vendors. Um, and so this is really a, a unique commodity circuit in the Atlantic world. And the reason why I decided to call it that is that my window into why people might because we're dealing with enslaved people, right? They don't have a lot of resources. Um, so why would they spend their time and energy and what meager resources they had procuring this item? You know, they, they sometimes would have from their owners a ration of cloth. You know, they could have clothed themselves. Why would you go out of your way to, to, to um, get this piece, this article from West Africa? Um, and I attended a talk several years ago by um, Wally Sininka, the famous um, Nigerian writer. And he had this really interesting um, explanation about how Yoruban aesthetics worked um, and how they express certain principles um, or ethics. And so he talked about this connection between representations of the ancestor representations of the fecund woman or the pregnant woman, and then representation of twins, right, um, in Yoruba sculpture. And he was saying that, you know, this is a really important sort of trilogy um, or triptych, much in the same way that, you know, Catholics have the, the triptych, you know, of, of you know, the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, this is a kind of parallel idea um, in Yoruban aesthetics. And he was, explaining that really what these um, pieces of art are expressing is a value in continuity, right? And, and, and just the sort of Yoruban belief that continuity is a source of strength, it's a source of identity, it's a source of um, uh, belonging. Um, and so that this idea can, principle can be expressed aesthetically. And so one of the things I was trying to do with the, with the you know, title of the article is express this idea of the value of continuity for people who had been uprooted by the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really um, the origin of the piece um, is, you know, I believe that what in enslaved people were trying to express is a belief in continuity, even if that continuity had to be invented in some sense, mm -hmm. right? Um, even if it could never really be perfect because people had been ripped from their homes from their families and from their communities because of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and they were now existing in this totally different context, which is a slave society, one of the most um, expansive in the world, which is Brazil. Mm, that's really beautiful. We're going to come back to that. Uh, we're going to take a brief break for our podcast listeners, and we'll be right back. Hey, as a listener to the Leading by History podcast, 
we want to tell you about some exclusive opportunities available to you as a listener. If you go to patreon.com backslash leading by history today, you'll find that there are three tiers of support that will give you exclusive access to our program. We've got the official patron level, the all access tier, and the highest level, the VIP patron level of support. If you want to find out how you can have exclusive access and have impact on what we offer, go to patreon.com backslash leading by history today. Welcome back to uh, Leading by History. Before the break, you were talking about this continuity through fabric. I just think that's so, it's, it's so abstract. It's so metaphysical. It's, it's some deep stuff, right? But being a descendant of the Akan <laughs> and knowing the power of the fabric, right? Like the Kente, et, et cetera you know, and the Indinkra symbols and, and those things, that the symbolism through fabric, also knowing in West African cultures that in some countries, when there is a garment that's made, a tunic that's made, and there is, um, there's the very colorful design that, you know, is, is worn on the, on the front, that's made on the front of the garment, that the larger it is, the more important, the, you know, like there's uh, things that are hidden within the fabric Mm-hmm. that the the person who is uninitiated would have no idea, right? And I think this is the power of African culture to where over time, the European knew during the transatlantic slave trade that he had to shut off the language, right? And, and stop groups of people from communicating. They had to learn that over uh, several decades uh, when they continued to, to have their ships driven into uh, the, the, the deep of the sea by those of us who broke free during that time period through communication, when they first enter in, they, it's just, it's gibberish to them. They can't tell Wallaf from Yoruba from, you know, anything else. But over time, they learn that there is a power to the sound and to the language mm-hmm. and even to the groaning or the moaning that it all represents something. The same thing later when on the plantations, the drum was forbidden. Right. And the string instruments had to take the place, but the rhythm and the slapping on the knee and the and the beating on the chest had to take the place of what was taken because the European realized that there was a message in the drum. So when we think about this continuity of culture, spirituality through cloth, Mm -hmm. it really makes us think in a modern context about all of our people who love Gucci, Louis. Fendi, right? And it's it's like it's this thing with us as a people. It's it's intergenerational, right? Inter and intra. It's just it's all over with us. I look at the photography of Jamel Shabazz, and he goes back into the 80s and shows the B-boys and B-girls in hip-hop culture. And you see Dapper Dan 
and the creation of, you know, this urban style, that's all rooted in us because we are African people. And I don't think that that folks realize, and that's why I mentioned E. Franklin Frazier earlier, it's just so ironic because they just had no idea during that time that all of what we do is rooted in our DNA. It's, you can't get away from it. And so thinking about your article and how folks were able to connect with what was lost, right? Mm -hmm. Miles and miles away, thousands of nautical miles out of their reach, but they connected back to that culture, connected back to that spirituality through fabric. That's just, that's powerful. That is just so powerful to me. And I mean, I think you said it really well. Um, you know, there have been theorists of this, you know, Stuart Hall is famous for saying that he has this great essay about how throughout the African diaspora, you can see that um, Black people essentially use the body as a form of expression, right? Yeah. There is just something about the body politics and uh, the body as a medium of expression and uh, a statement of identity and even a statement of politics um, that is very unique to the African diaspora. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, our, our sartorial choices are certainly part of that. I mean, there are other parts of bodily modification, you know, scarification, hairstyle, all of this stuff um, that, you know, there's been rich anthropological work, especially done on, um, on the African diaspora. And, you know, two people who really inspired me, um, one is my colleague here at Amherst College, Roland Abiodun, um, who really, he's a art historian. He focuses on uh, Yoruba art objects and material culture. And he has written extensively about how we need to understand these objects as expressions of philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. They're not just pretty things to look at. They're right. actually expressing ideas. They're expressing concepts and they're expressing, you know, broadly socially recognizable values, right? So continuity be, would be one particular value, but, you know, and other people have written about this, uh, like Robert Ferris Thompson, the idea of cool, right? Composure under pressure, right? The, the withholding of sentimentality or nervousness and an adoption of a, of, of a sort of facade of coolness. We can trace that kind of idea back to West Africa. And so, you know, I don't want to be too, um, I guess, overstating the degree of continuity, right? Because we have to realize a lot shifted in the transatlantic passage. Um, people weren't part of let's say lineages, family lineages that had identified, you know, been the, the sort of basis of their identity as they would have been before they had been enslaved. But they had to create new kinds of communities in the new world. And one of the things I argue in the article is that cloth helps them do that, right? Because even if you hadn't been from one of these Yoruba speaking communities in West Africa, let's say you had been from Congo even, or further south, that had never seen this item of cloth before, you could become part of a West African community through wearing this cloth and through inhabiting this kind of bodily signification. Um, people would look at it and understand what you were trying to communicate to them, which is that I'm a part of this African community in Brazil. Um, so one of the interesting things about the cloth is that even though it's fabricated you know, in places like Oyo, which is one of the great empires of what is now Nigeria, um, it was also fabricated in other places like Ijebu, um, you know, Benin cloth um, sort of uh, predated um, the Panos da Costa, but it's, it's fabricated in certain places, but in Brazil, a range of people of African descent 
different ethnicities begin to wear this cloth, right? Because it identifies them first with a particular West African community and then eventually with a religious community, which is Candomblé, which is um, an Afro-Brazilian um, cult religion, right? Which is has precedence um, in places like Dahomey and places like Oyo and draws on those kinds of religious ideals, but really um, people in, West, in Brazil are making something new. Um, right. And um, But they're drawing on inspiration from West African past. And that's the power of African syncretism is mm -hmm. that there's this constant drawing in of different ideas that you're experiencing during this period of slavery and incorporating that into your own understanding and ideas of Africa that may be faded to some degree, but they're still there. And so, yes, uh, we don't want to overstate, as you stated, the, the continuity there, that there was just this clear, continued line unbroken. But I think in the metaphysical realm, that there were there was this reaching back, right? This inner Sankofa bird that knew that we had to we had to look back to go forward, right? That there was something that we were yearning for that we were trying to obtain, even though we may not have been very clear on 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 exactly the meaning, but it meant something. To, it was almost like a remix, and that's what we do is we remix. And that's why when I mentioned about uh, Dapper Dan and the styles and the fashions, I really believe that all of that, and I think there's been research there, uh, all of that beautification being a part of something inherently African in us. You know, Dr. Afia and Billy Shaka came on uh, the show. I, I had her come and speak to a group of K-12 children in, in the last couple of months. And she talked about the plaiting of African hair that some used as maps in order to escape enslavement. Or, and I'm just like, you know, it's just so powerful, the mind and the spirit of the African, which has been so demonized by Western society. Now, you're, in your article, you say early in, you make this statement that I want you to talk about a little bit. You said, in illuminating the contours of the trade in Panos uh, da Costa, you uncover the everyday, and this is what you say, the commercial agency of Africans and Afro-Brazilians challenging the central axiom of studies of the slave trade that was this, that enslaved people's sole relationship to Atlantic commerce was as commodities themselves. And I think that's powerful that what I read into what you're saying is that, <laughs> Though people try to make us the things mm -hmm. uh, and, and our bodies as these physical forms of, of commodity, we were really wheeling and dealing in something under the surface that was way outside of that. Can, can you talk to me about how that challenge to the standard flows throughout your research here and give some examples? Yeah, so that's a really key point of the article, which is that this idea that, you know, there's a lot of fantastic literature about, the, about this process of commodification of enslaved people, um, particularly in West Africa, you know, Stephanie Smallwood's fantastic book, Saltwater Slavery. So this, this process of commodification tends to be how, you know, most people imagine uh, the relationship between 
these early modern currents of commerce and African people, right? So their role in this, in this transatlantic commercial system is merely one of object, right? Um, and even though slaveholders tried mightily to reduce them to nothing but that, to just sort of make them this extensions of their will, to make them these sort of um, fungible commodities that could be traded, that be, could be used to generate profits, that enslaved people themselves, um, I think there's strong evidence to, to, to point to the idea that they understood they were being commodified. Mm -hmm. um, they would, um, you know, compare themselves to, at times um, we have, um, you know, primary sources in which enslaved people compare themselves to, let's say, we were treated like cattle, right? The understanding that you understand that you're being commodified. But also in their lives, they were able to carve out these spaces of autonomy for cultural expression, which we already discussed, right? Their aesthetic preferences. They wanted to wear this kind of cloth, which they thought was beautiful and meaningful and communicated certain kinds of values. But also they carved out spaces to generate a modicum of income for themselves by engaging in these kind of um, small scale trades between West Africa and Brazil. Um, and so what did, generating this small amount of money help them do. So I have an example of uh, an enslaved woman who runs away with her small child in Lisbon um, named Maria Luisa in the early 19th century. And so she's carrying with her, you know, a mantilla, um, which is a head covering. She's carrying with her a panos da costa. She's carrying with her like two skirts and a few gold coins, right? So how does she come to have these well, firstly, we, we have to step back and say, you know, put ourselves in her position. You're running away with a child. That itself is such a right. profound, deeply disturbing, but also kind of, we can relate to that feeling of desperation, right? Um, so what? how did she come about having those coins, right? How does she have those coins? And I think there's an argument to be made that she's probably a vendor and she's selling things on the streets or se selling things in these small, um, market stalls called quimpandas, where um, African women basically monopolize this local trade in household goods, um, foodstuffs, all these different things that you would buy and sell on the street. And so it's by participating in this monetary economy that people can save up enough money to, um, let's say, free themselves, because they can purchase their own slavery through a process of manumission called cortacion in, um, in uh, in Brazil, they can also um, buy a bit of property. You know, there, there are different things that they can do with this money that they're that they're accumulating from selling these West African goods. Um, and you know, there's another example. Um, there's this famous uh, early Candomblé practitioner named Domingo Sodre, and the police. This is during the, an era of repression of Candomblé. Um, the police raid his property. Um, this is probably where he's conducting his ceremonies. He was known as a famous diviner. Um, he helps people understand, you know, what their fortune of the future would be. And he was also engaged in acts of healing. Um, and his ritual assistant who later becomes his wife, Maria Delfina is found with a box of cloth. So we can imagine that she was walking around the streets of Salvador selling this cloth, probably to West African customers, right, probably to other enslaved people, maybe freed people, and that the money she made from that was probably supporting Domingo Sore's early um, establishment of his, um, you know, Candomblé Tejero, his Candomblé te temple. 
Mm. So it's through the trading of goods that actually the, there was a financial support generated for uh, the formation of these religious communities and congregations of Candomblé. Um, so there's, you know, this money can be put to all sorts of um, uses that are, are personally empowering and community building for these people. Mm. I always marvel at the ingenuity and the depth of African people in the midst of the worst crises in the history of our world. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's such an escapism that is, is developed, whether knowingly or unknowingly. This coping mechanism to deal with circumstance. I, I, I'm just my, my mind is just thinking about all of this as you're bringing in the Afro-Brazilian history here, and I'm just thinking about it in terms of North Americans' uh, enslavement, and I'm just, I, yeah, I, and I'm just like, wow, you know, I'm thinking about you know the 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 rules that the French put on the enslaved about the wearing of the head cover. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all of this stuff and I'm just and, and how in each situation we flip it and we go somewhere that they didn't expect for us to go. As we're coming down to our, our uh, end of the show, I want you to to tell me from the research that you did here, what really speaks to you the most? What what really connects you to the history other than just the the topical interest Mm -hmm. what parts of what you have been researching have been a part of soul searching and development like what what has been the 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 solical spiritual connection what things have jumped out in your research where you're just like you know what this is this is what I got to do this is what I got to learn more about like what in this is the is the motivating factor do you get what I'm asking you? I know it's a, a yeah. huge question, but I just want to get from you, like what, what resonates with you the most? Because I mean, you talk about how you get into this and why practically, but is there anything in your studies where there are people or instances or scenarios that have just touched your heart where you're just like, wow, like this story must be told because of its power and its impact. Anything like that have you experienced? I mean, there's so many from my book. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's one thing that I think can't be overstated is that it is emotionally challenging studying slavery. Um, as you mentioned before, just the levels of brutality. You know, we also live in a violent world. We shouldn't fool ourselves about that. But the levels of brutality that existed um, during the era of slavery are, are just almost unfathomable. Um, and so you do encounter that in the archive. But you also encounter these stories of people not only carving out, I think freedom is almost too thin of a concept. They're carving out a sense of themselves. Right, and that can mean many things. It can mean autonomy, as was the case for many of the enslaved mariners who, let's say, ran away. Um, So I um, write about um, enslaved individuals who, for instance, used a free soil law in Portugal to claim their freedom. It meant if you step foot on Portuguese soil, you could become free. And they start Mm -hmm. to generate all these novel arguments. And a lot of them boil down to, well, um, everyone deserves to be free, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and, but they also have these religious communities supporting them. There are these um, black Catholic brotherhoods in Lisbon that offer them 
advice, money, um, legal support, legal aid. They hire people to represent them in front of Portuguese authorities. So really that sense of, you know, someone can just be um, an escaped person from a ship um, who's born in Africa, was enslaved and is now on a Portuguese vessel, who runs away, meets these strangers um, in a Catholic brotherhood and there's a bond there because they believe in freedom. And that community then envelops that person and tries to help them secure their freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something really beautiful. We were talking about solidarity before. There's something really beautiful about the helping of strangers um, that touches me. And also the people who are attempting to really keep their families whole. Um, that's mm -hmm. the other thing that I think comes through or keep a sense of community whole. Um, you know, these Candomblé Tejeros are in many ways clandestine communities where people could worship the way that they wanted. They could evoke the, the kinds of values that they wanted. Um, and and times they were intruded on uh, upon by uh, police and authorities um, mm. and they were brutally, brutally repressed at times. Um, but that that does touch me that people created human relationships of durability and meaning and value under the most harsh mm. and deplorable conditions that we can probably imagine. Mm. Um, and I think there's something universally human um, about that. And I don't think you have to be, you know, identify as black, right? To be touched by that drive for human connection. Mm. I think that's well said. And I always like to leave our audience with with a charge, um, and I think that you've you've given them a veiled charge within your final statements. Is that I think the charge is for them to go out into the greater society, starting where they are, and build a sense of community um, to envelop the stranger, as you said, and to be able to help those who are in need. And I think that that is a charge that we can think about is how do we as people who are the descendants of enslaved folk treat one another today? How do we engage each other today? How do we envelop them with, with love and compassion and support? I think it's a check for us to really think about our uh, community as African people in the Americas today. I thank you so much for being with us. What a what a lovely time to talk about uh, some of these things. I mean, there, there's so much more, and we never get to the bottom of it all in in the one episode. And 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 maybe we'll have you come back in the future and and spend time with us if you'd if you'd be willing. But um, I thank you so much for being with us today. On, on Leading by History. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And as we normally say from Leading by History, peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We enjoyed being with you today and we look forward to being with you again soon. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace. Peace.